It's so good to be with you all today. And if you're new to River Tree, we welcome you with open hearts. So today's message is titled, Giving Up Enemies, maybe also known as dealing with unlikely friends. Well, either way, great idea, right? That sounds like an awesome thing to be able to do, like just uh, wash your hands of them, kick, kick them to the curb, just get them out of your life. Or do you think we might be talking about giving them, giving the situation, and giving all the pain that it's caused up to God? Well, that's the struggle we're really looking at today. An enemy is defined as a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. That's a pretty broad definition. So I'm thinking it's not just the people who oppose us in war. It's probably not just that somebody that might do harm to you or your family. And probably bigger than the people that hold different opinions or values than we do. So perhaps maybe we could even class them as unlikely friends. I believe the definition is broad enough to include the guy that just cut you off in traffic or the co-worker that, uh, that started rumors about you or the kid in the class that we might call or think of as the bully or even, even something said by a loved one that just uh, was said in anger and, and just kind of cuts really deep. So let's let, let's let all that settle for a minute while we turn to God's message uh, for today. This is about Jesus entering Jerusalem that last week of his earthly life when he's about to face his own enemies. This uh, scripture is from Luke 19, 37 to 44. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, even if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Boy, consider the joy of walking in that crowd next to your Messiah. An experience so intense that if the people weren't shouting, the stones themselves would be crying out in praise. I mean, even the taunting of the Pharisees couldn't turn the enthusiasm down. And yet, Jesus wept 
Only Jesus knows at that point in time that he's been sent to bring peace of eternity to the earth. It's not that he hasn't tried to tell them, but he only knows that he's fit what he's facing in this final week and what they're facing in their future. Only he knows how the crowd will unbelievably turn on him. And only he knows that they have missed the point. His own disciples will betray him and denounce him. And some of these same people that are rejoicing with him on that very day will see their own adoration turn into bitterness and anger as they call for his crucifixion in a few days. I mean, even they even shout for the criminal Barabbas to be released instead of having mercy on Jesus's life when they had that choice. So it breaks his heart to know what's coming, not only for himself, but also for them and for us. It's in this very moment of scripture that Jesus is not thinking about the torture and the humiliation that he's about to endure. No, he's thinking about them. He's concerned now that they don't understand that the peace of eternity will be theirs with him and with the Father in heaven. Jesus knows that in this earthly life, there will still be enemies to deal with. And there will still be people that will turn on them. So how can he be, how can he be so compassionate to, when he knows what's coming, not only for himself, but for them, and again, for us? You know that Jesus has the power to rebuke them or to reprimand them in any way he chooses, but he doesn't. He chooses compassion. He has compassion for them. He prays for them. He prays for us. You know, when, when Jesus sacrificed for us and when he prays for us, even to this day, he prays for our souls. And I believe he establishes lifelines for us. I mean, have you ever seen the sun emanating sun rays so, so distinctly that they're reaching all the way from the sun to the ground? I think of those as lifelines, like God's fingers just reaching down to us. And I know they're just sun rays, but I just like that image of thinking of them as God's lifelines. So, okay, so that's our scripture. Let's move ahead a couple thousand years here and get back to the people who have said or done things that have hurt us. You know, the guy in traffic or... Uh, the coworker or the kid in class, or even that loved one who in anger acts out or speaks harshly. So how do we react? I mean, right then, right when the negativity first happens, what are our gut reactions to this? Depending on the offense, we might react with anger or um, embarrassment or uh, even heartbreak for the pain it's causing us. We might also be tempted to, I don't know, yell back or feel like we want to hit something 
or maybe we just want to slink away from the humili humiliation that, um, that we're feeling at the time. And if we don't act in an outwardly way, we're probably tempted to file the offense away, right? I mean, you know what I mean, in our emotional baggage, where we keep all of our hurts and where the, the grudges are kept and we just keep adding layer after layer after layer to them, making that baggage really heavy. And worst of all, worst of all, if we react in any of these responses, each one of those hurts that we're hanging on to becomes a brick in the wall of our own defense. So we may be thinking of walling ourselves off from our attackers. We're not gonna let, the, we're not gonna let them get the best of us anymore, right? But this is a wall that God can see and he didn't build us to be walled off from each other. It's a, it's a wall that, that God can feel and he didn't create us to be separated from him in any way. And it's a wall that acts as a sound barrier, making it harder and harder with each new brick for us to hear him calling. There's just nothing good about these walls. So if this is hitting home at all, I know it is with me because I know what, what, what I feel like I need to do is come up with a new gut reaction. That might be a difficult, but instead of acting out in anger or in pain, we really might do well to model Jesus, right? He's showed nothing but compassion and mercy for those would-be enemies that were really out to get him. So maybe, maybe we need to cry out to God in prayer for our offender. You know, every time we pray, I believe, every time we pray for someone else, I believe that we're creating those heavenly lifelines. Those heavenly lifelines. I know that God extends his, his heavenly lifelines to all of us without question. But every time we pray for someone else, I think it makes their lifelines even stronger. Our compassion for others is important to God. He takes note of that. He cares when we pray for others. And every time we pray at all, we make our own lifelines stronger. Those are connections that we make with God each time we turn to him in prayer. Certainly by doing this, uh, we're making it possible or we're beginning the, the healing process in our, own, in our own life. We're finally giving our hearts a chance to mend and get beyond the hurt. So I think of it as a win-win situation. We make our own lives stronger when we pray for someone else or when we pray for ourselves. We create more compassion and peace in our own life. And if our offender doesn't know God yet, we're helping to establish sturdier heavenly connections for them. So in Mark 11, we'll turn to scripture again. In Mark 11, verse 25, it says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against 
anyone else, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay, so let's get practical. I'm all about practical plans and about practicing plans. So how can I tear down my walls? How can I destroy those grudges and empty out all that emotional baggage? I mean, after all, it's taken me years to get here. Just model Jesus, right? Some things are easier said than done. So I've come up with um, an action plan of sorts that I thought I would share with you. Some steps that we can think of as our care plan. So the C in care is change your perspective. It might be a stretch, but we've really got to try to leave that stinking thinking behind us that tempts us to believe that there's anybody in this world, anybody at all, that might not be worth saving because that's just not the truth. We're all God's children. We're all worth saving. So change your perspective. Try to take a look at the situation from God's perspective. The A in our care plan is appeal to the Holy Spirit for forgiveness and to help you forgive. Forgiveness is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So call on him, appeal to the Holy Spirit. Then the R in our care plan is release the offense. Let it go. This one's tough, you guys, but let it go. The longer you hang on to it, the faster those grudge, those ugly, ugly grudge animals will grow. And there's just nothing good about it. So the faster, the better. Give it up. Release that offense. And finally, the E, elevate. Elevate your offender in your prayer life. Help strengthen everybody's heavenly lifelines. Lift them up. Now, there's a chance that your offender and you may never become besties. But practice the care plan, and I'm pretty sure it'll lead you to an inner peace and who knows, just maybe you'll even become unlikely friends. <laughs>